You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 4, Britain, France, and the Indians. Now, I know we're already on Episode 4 and nowhere near close to discussing the actual American Revolution. Before we get to the revolution itself, I need to go through events leading up to the war, and a big part of that is the French and Indian War. We see many leaders of the revolution, from both sides, getting their start in that war. It also gives rise to some of the divisive issues that eventually lead to the revolution. I'm going to ask for even more patience by pointing out that today's episode will not even get into the French and Indian War. I want to talk about the relations between the English, the French, and the various Indian tribes that will play a role in that war. Next week, though, I promise we will get into some actual discussions of fighting. As the French and Indian War began, Britain was solidly in control of the east coast of what is today the United States, except for Spain-controlled Florida. Further north, Britain had extinguished many claims by the Netherlands, Sweden, France, and others. Its policy of encouraging massive colonization had helped secure those claims. Britain had a colonial population of about 1.5 million, while New France's population totaled only around 75,000. The powerful British Navy had forced France to cede Newfoundland and Nova Scotia in what is today Canada after the War of Spanish Succession in 1713. At the same time, it also received control of the Hudson Bay Company area, which is most of northern Canada today. It was not considered terribly significant concession at the time. Much of the war was fought over control of various parts of Europe, and France cared more about valuable Caribbean colonies with large cash crops. Canada's territory was mostly about offshore fishing rights and a thriving but not terribly profitable fur industry and France retained much of its control of the fur industry through its continued control of the Great Lakes region. The area known as New France, and later Louisiana, accessed the Atlantic Ocean via the St. Lawrence River. France still controlled the area around the Great Lakes region further inland. French claims extended down the Ohio and Mississippi rivers all the way to French-controlled New Orleans. The French had made a number of failed attempts to create forts and outposts in the 1500s. Most of these failed quickly from starvation, disease, and or Indians. But by the early 1600s, France began to establish some successful permanent outposts. More than a century later, there were long-standing and well-established French colonies in Quebec, Montreal, Detroit, Green Bay, and numerous smaller ones along the St. Lawrence River and around the Great Lakes. In addition, the French had established claims at the mouth of the Mississippi River, including New Orleans and Baton Rouge. France also laid claims to all of the Mississippi Valley and created forts and colonies along the Mississippi River as well, the largest one being St. Louis in modern-day Missouri. Many of Britain's colonial grants to colonies created no western border. Some colonies made legal claims to land all the way across the continent to the Pacific. These, of course, conflicted with France's claims. But theoretical claims mattered little, since virtually no colonists had moved west of the Appalachian Mountains, which were only a few hundred miles inland. These mountains separated the French and English colonists for centuries. 
but by the mid-1700s, the French were beginning to move south in larger numbers into the Ohio Valley. At the same time, English colonists were pushing west into these same lands. Virginia, in particular, was interested in settling the Ohio Valley, and these competing claims would give rise to war. All colonial powers knew that legal claims meant little unless you had people living on the land willing to back up those claims and military might to support the settlers. Now, in the prior half-century, Britain and France had gone to war on at least six separate occasions, many involving in part disputes over the colonies in North America. I'm going to go over a brief summary of them. The first is the War of the Grand Alliance, also known as the Nine Years' War, also known as King William's War, from 1688 to 1697 during the reign of King William and Mary. In the American theater, this mostly involved border raids primarily between the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the French Canadians. No major border changes or land swaps resulted from this war, and it was mostly an extension of a larger war in Europe caused when the English deposed the pro-French Catholic King James II in favor of William and Mary. The next war is the War of Spanish Succession, also known as Queen Anne's War, from 1701 to 1714. The European War involved almost all major powers in a fight over whether Spain would fall under the control of the French royal family. In America, this involved fighting on three fronts, between the New England colonies against New France, between the Carolinas and Georgia against Spanish Florida, and between the English and French colonists in Newfoundland. The war ended up forcing France to cede parts of northern Canada, eastern Quebec, and Newfoundland to the British. Almost as soon as Queen Anne's War ended, in 1715, we see the Jacobite Uprising that lasted for two years, 1715 to 1716, where France attempted to restore a pro-French Catholic king to the British throne after the death of Queen Anne. A few years after they wrapped up that war, the Dummers War, 1721 to 1725, primarily involved a border dispute in Maine between Massachusetts and New France. Dummer's War also enabled New England colonists to push the Wabanaki Confederacy Indians out of New England, the effects of which I'll discuss in a few minutes. In 1740, the War of Austrian Succession, which was actually a big war made up of several smaller wars, including the War of Jenkins' Ear, started after a Spanish naval captain cut off the ear of a British merchant vessel captain named Jenkins. There was also the First Carnatic War, which involved disputes over colonies in India and King George's War in America. It also included another attempt by the French to encourage and support another Jacobite uprising in Britain to overthrow the Protestant King George. It was during this uprising that the British fought the famous Battle of Culloden that will have lasting impacts on British politics, and I will discuss more in future episodes. The American theater, as I said, was known as King George's War, and involved intense fighting between the New England colonists and the French colonists to the north, along with their Indian allies. And finally, the Sixth War in this 50-year period was the Second Carnatic War. France and England fought again over control of various parts of India. Now again, these were only the wars that Britain fought against France during this period. Britain also participated in the Great Northern War, 1700-1721, in support of King George I, who was involved because of his rule in Hanover. Britain even found time to ally itself with France in the War of the Quadruple Alliance, 1717-1720, against Spain. 
Britain found itself in almost a constant state of war with someone in the preceding couple of generations, and more often than not, France was on the other side. Now, in fighting all these wars, England was not always sacrificing an entire generation to the cause of war. Most European powers fought wars with relatively small, professionally trained armies. Paying for a good professional army was simply the cost of running a country. Using that army effectively is how a leader obtained more wealth and political strength against one's neighbors. In the colonies, the British government often relied on colonial militia to provide the necessary soldiers. This often led to a much larger toll of human life for the colonists. In King George's War, for example, Massachusetts devoted a great deal of money and manpower to push back the French borders and claim more land for the colony. It is estimated that around 8% of the adult male population in Massachusetts died in that war. So when Britain decided to give back those captured lands to France in the interests of securing other land in Europe, many colonists were outraged. They were fighting for their lives, while European nobility was simply using them as pawns. So in the early 1750s, when both Britain and France began a shoving match over the Ohio Valley, no one would have been terribly surprised to see another big war on the horizon. The resolution of King George's War in 1748 essentially passed off the competing claims which Britain and France both had to this area to a commission to work out the details. The commission never resolved anything, leading both countries to push ahead and take what they could get. At first glance, it would seem that the French had a very untenable position. There were about 75,000 French colonists in all of North America, compared to about 1.5 million colonists living in the British colonies. Now, militia would make up the bulk of the forces fighting in North America, so Britain's colonial population, 20 times that of France, gave it the clear advantage. Now, the French then had to rely more on alliances with their local Indian tribes. This may be a little oversimplistic, but basically French colonists tended to have closer relationships with the native population than did the British. French trappers had thriving fur trading businesses with local tribes, and Frenchmen frequently intermarried with the Indians and formed strong bonds with them. British colonists traded with local tribes, but more commonly maintained their own separate communities with less interaction. At this time, there were virtually no European colonists from either side living in the Ohio Valley. Most of the land fell under the control of the Iroquois Confederacy. Parts of the border areas to the north and east were controlled by the Algonquin-speaking Wabanaki Confederacy. Neither of these groups had any strong central government, but rather were coalitions of smaller tribes who interacted and traded with one another, but largely operated independently. Now today we often look back in hindsight on the Indian tribes of North America as inferior militarily and doomed to give way to European conquest. But in the mid-18th century, several very powerful tribes and confederations stood as substantial military forces with the ability to hold their own against the European powers. Colonies and nations entered into treaties with them, went to considerable expense to maintain their alliances, and recognized that respect for native cooperation was key to colonization. If the various tribes had remained united in opposition to the European powers, we probably would have seen a very different story unfold. 
Unfortunately for the Indians, they never could develop a sustained united opposition, at least not until the 19th century, when it was far too late. Rather, many tribes were more interested in European alliances that would improve their position against neighboring tribes. Aside from these divisions, the devastation from European diseases also largely contributed to their eventual downfall. But in the mid-1700s, the Iroquois Confederacy dominated the Great Lakes region. Now, the origins of this confederacy are not very clear. However, it seems that they organized sometime in the 1400s and that the confederacy originally comprised five tribes, the Mohawk, the Oneida, the Onondaga, the Cayuga, and the Seneca. In 1722, a sixth tribe joined the confederacy, the Tuscarora. Based on language and cultural traditions, anthropologists believe that the Iroquois migrated north from southern tribes, invading the Algonquin-speaking region of the Great Lakes. According to oral history, these divided tribes had fought one another continuously for generations. The Confederacy allowed them to work together as a coalition of tribes in their own mutual interest. They shared a common language, culture, and religion. And the need for mutual defense against larger hostile tribes probably strongly contributed to their decision to unite. The Iroquois, though, even when all the tribes are combined, were never a particularly large group. For most of their existence, the five tribes probably never amounted to more than a few thousand people. Their territory was originally limited to what is today part of upstate New York and a small sliver of southern Canada. But the Iroquois Confederacy was able to take on power exceeding its size after forming a trading reliance with the Dutch, who in the early 1600s settled in what is today New York. With Dutch arms and ammunition, the Iroquois became one of the first tribes in the region with significant numbers of firearms. This advantage allowed the Confederacy to expand its territory drastically. The Iroquois claimed control of lands which now make up New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, and Illinois. Some of these claims seem to be a bit of a reach, since the Iroquois could never really sustain the subservience of other tribes in all of these areas. But much of the Iroquois' focus was on maintaining the valuable control of trade with the European powers. Many tribes at least nominally acquiesced to Iroquois control while still largely running their own affairs. The result, however, was that the Iroquois controlled all diplomatic relations with the Europeans. They made treaties on behalf of other tribes who were often powerless to object to them. For most of the 1600s, the Iroquois were hostile to the French, mostly because of French alliances with the Huron, an enemy tribe of the Iroquois. It did not help that for a period of time, the French decided to kidnap as many Iroquois as possible so they could ship them back to France to use as galley slaves. Around 1700, the Iroquois adopted a policy of neutrality, which they hoped would allow them to play themselves off against the French and British as it suited them. Generally, though, when forced to pick a side, the Iroquois sided with the British. Now, many of the conquered tribes were not terribly happy living under Iroquois rule. The Delaware and Shawnee thought they were cheated out of land in Pennsylvania through several treaties. One such deal, which would become more of an issue later, 
was the walking purchase. So I want to describe the walking purchase for those of you who may not be familiar with it. In 1737, the owner of Pennsylvania, Thomas Penn, found a 50-year-old document between his father, William Penn, and several local chiefs. The document, which Penn characterized as a deed, granted Penn land for as far as a man could walk in a day and a half from an area near modern-day Wrightstown, Pennsylvania. Although the 1686 document had never been executed, was not signed, and despite the fact that all of the parties involved were now dead, Penn decided to enforce the terms of the agreement and measure off the land that was acquired by it. To determine the land, Penn hired three long-distance runners to maximize how much land they could walk in a day and a half. Roads were cut for them, and boats stood by to carry them over any water impediments in order to maximize their distance. The best runner made it over 65 miles to an area near modern-day Jim Thorpe. A creatively drawn border from that point back to the Delaware River added even more land to the claim, about 1,200 square miles in all. Iroquois leaders took bribes, or gifts depending on one's perspective, from the colony and ratified the deal. At a meeting to resolve disputes, the Iroquois leader, Conestego, insulted the Delaware laying the blame on them for dealing with the English directly rather than allowing the Iroquois to negotiate on their behalf. Quote, You deserve to be taken by the hair of your heads and shaken till you recover your senses and become sober. We have a deed signed by your chiefs above 50 years ago for this very land. But how came you to take upon yourselves to sell land at all? We conquered you. We made women of you. End quote. The Delaware did not have the power to resist and were forced to leave the land immediately, some moving north, others moving west. In another 1744 treaty in Lancaster, the Iroquois sold lands in the Shenandoah Valley, also home to Shawnee, Delaware, and Catawba tribes. This time, however, the Iroquois themselves felt cheated after the Virginians claimed the treaty gave them control of the entire Ohio Valley as well. Still, the Iroquois remained on good terms with Virginia, as the colony had not yet tried to settle in that area. The Iroquois were more afraid of French incursions and needed the British colonial support to protect the Iroquois presence there. Now, as I said, the Iroquois never became a particularly large population of themselves. At their height, they numbered about 12,000, and they likely controlled or claimed control over about 100,000 other native people throughout the larger region. But there were lots of tribes that were not under control of the Iroquois Confederation. One of the largest in the area was the Wabanaki Confederacy. The original Confederacy consisted of the Abenaki, the Penobscot, the Maliseet, the Passamonaque, and the Mi'kmaq. They spoke the Algonquin language, very different from their neighboring Iroquois. They originally populated New England and Eastern Canada. The New England colonists had already mostly wiped out these tribes, with the survivors moving inland toward the Great Lakes. This history with the New Englanders made them particularly likely to side with the French in any dispute. Also, the Wabanaki were the traditional enemies of the Iroquois. They were larger in number, but not nearly as well organized or armed. Some tribes allied with the Wabanaki did speak the Iroquois language, but were not part of the Six Nations of the Iroquois Confederacy. 
Many of these tribes were early allies with French explorers and traders. They had developed a booming and profitable fur trade with the French. This interaction, unfortunately for them, resulted in the death of large portions of their population from European diseases. These tribes further suffered from Iroquois expansion during the 1600s, and many smaller tribes were wiped out or forced to migrate to other lands. As I mentioned already, many New England tribes were forced into Canada by the British colonists, so without getting into too much detail, suffice it to say that if the British and Iroquois were on one side of a fight, the Wabanaki and most other Indians in the area who were not under the control of the Iroquois would be on the French side. As I've already mentioned, the Delaware lived under Iroquois control. As a result of the land claims in Pennsylvania, these tribes by the mid-1700s had divided into the eastern Delaware, which lived in what is today northeastern Pennsylvania, north of the Walking Purchase, and the western Delaware, who lived in what is today western Pennsylvania and the Ohio Valley. Other tribes living among the western Delaware were the Mingo and the Shawnee, also under Iroquois control. Further west, around the Great Lakes, we find other tribes generally friendly with the French. These included the Huron, the Ojibwa, the Ottawa, and the Wyandotte. Further west, we find the Illinois Confederation, and the Illinois had less contact with Europeans generally, and if they did come into contact, it was usually with the French. Further south, the Cherokee dominated. This group, mostly found in the area that is now eastern Tennessee and the western Carolinas, interacted more with the southern colonies. They traded for arms and other supplies, becoming rather dependent on the English for trade. Further south, the Creek tribes still lived in part of what is today western Georgia and Florida. The Creek had less contact with the English and still tended to interact more with the Spanish outposts along the Gulf coasts. As Georgia moved into their territory, though, they began to trade more with the English colonists as well. Okay, got all that? For purposes of the upcoming war, just remember this. Iroquois, pro-English. Delaware, Shawnee, and Mingo, subservient to the Iroquois. Pretty much all other northern tribes, pro-French. Okay, now that we've got done with the introductions and backgrounds, next week, the Virginians move into the Ohio Valley, igniting another world war. Also, for those of you that are interested in learning more about any episode, I've created a blog at amrevpodcast.blogspot.com, which contains a transcript of each episode. The transcript also includes illustrations and maps that may help you understand what's going on a little better. More importantly, it contains links to sources which I have used for this podcast or which are relevant to the topic. Some of them are free, free websites, free books. Others are links to goodbooks at Amazon.com. So if you're interested in reading more about any of these topics, visit amrevpodcast.blogspot.com. Thanks.